Welcome to the last 2019 episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, book editor for Brown is the New White and director of strategic communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. What's on tap for our listeners in today's last episode of the decade? Hey, Steve. I, d- I can't even believe that we are saying that, the last you know episode of the decade. Um, our decade oh. is wrapping up. I am still wrapping my head around that. I can't believe we're heading into 2020, and I still keep wondering, when am I going to get my jetpack? <laughs> <laughs> Should we break into the Jetsons music yes. now? Meet I really want, Jetson. I really want my jetpack, and from the Jetsons, my own little spaceship. And yeah, so 2020, here we come. Uh, and this is partly what we had in mind in terms of realizing they were entering new decade, entering 2020, a presidential election year. And given that there has been and was so much what we would think, you know, what we can think of as really just hard news this year, 2019 was not an easy year. And there, the news was heartbreaking. It was all around kind of depressing, definitely. And we wanted to close out this year with more inspiring stories. We want to give our listeners some stories that are hopeful, and so we wanted this episode to really bring um, hopefulness and inspiring stories forward. So we want to share what we are calling the top 10 stories to give us hope heading into 2020, aka top 10 stories to restore your faith in politics in this country and This list, by the way, will be published in a companion piece written by you, Steve, and that piece will be published in The Nation magazine and also on on their online platform. And we're going to put that link in the show notes when it's available, so everybody do check that out. We would also be remiss if we did not mention that we realize there are a bunch of stories that we will have left out. And this is the nature of these type of list stories. So we just want to put right out there that we know we um, there are lots of stories that could be included in this list that we just couldn't mention all of them. We could have a list that is top 100 or 500 list, Steve, mm-hmm. and we would probably have a 10-hour episode. Yes, then our producer's <laughs> head would explode. Yeah, and I'm not really sure listeners want to listen to a 10-hour episode or that it would be that fun to record one. But we thought we needed to do, um, we wanted to do a list, and so we decided. Top 10 stories. So we um, also wanted to recognize that many of our listeners might not agree with the order of our list, and they might have some stories that they wish were on it. And as always, we encourage listeners to give us feedback and give us your comments by calling our hotline. And that number again is 415-209-5103. 415-209-5103. So call the hotline, let us know your thoughts, and we will take a listen to it and maybe report back on it. So with that, let's get right down to it because we've got 10. So again, top 10 stories to give us hope heading into 2020. Steve, what's number 10? So number 10 is the success of the activists fighting for the families on the border, right? So remember that after the, there was a brief period of visibility and national concern and outrage about the, what's happening to the lives of the refugee children and families that were putting in cages on the border, but then a lot of that quickly faded from view. 
But there's still been a lot of different activists and organizations continuing to fight that fight on the border against what this administration is doing, et cetera. And so most recently, the Southern Border Communities Coalition, it's a network of groups from Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California, partnered with the ACLU and Sierra Club to file a lawsuit to try to block Trump's wall. They was trying to take this money for, that Congress did not appro- appropriate, try to use it to build the wall. And so they won that lawsuit. Um, and so that was a case. I mean, it might ultimately be appealed, but it's been blocked. And as of now, he's not able to access those funds. So I just think this security is important because it really it fuels the motivation because there's so many defeats, so many negative things that actually happen that it really can fuel the motivation of those who are in the trenches continuing to hold the line against these human rights abuses there. And then also every day that we block them from doing what they try to do is one day closer to the end of the administration and one less day of destruction that we'll ultimately have to undo. So number 10 is the, the success of the activists and the groups fighting for the families on the border. Such a good reminder. Obviously, that whole crisis and tragedy has been so maddening. Maddening doesn't even really cover enough. In you know, it's enraging, and heart wrenching. And to to just think about the families and children facing those attacks and their lives um, at risk every day. And um, those stories are the ones that I will remember from 2019. And yet, you are right to. For it is important for us to remember all the activists who continue every day to fight for justice and to make things right. You know, again, we want to thank all the activists out there who are on the front lines fighting every day. A lot of the coverage happened earlier in the year, and then the media moved on. So we want to just remind everyone that that fight is still taking place every day, and it is something to be hopeful about and thankful about. Yeah, and there's a, there's a website for the Southern Border Communities Coalition that people could go to um, if they want to support their work. Great. Everybody check that out. Okay, moving on. Steve, tell us about number nine. What's number nine? So number nine, very excited about, is the continued and increased progressive investment in the work of Stacey Abrams. Woohoo! So many people don't know, now that Stacey's become so successful, that she was not initially enthusiastically embraced by many people in the progressive movement, including a lot of the current presidential candidates who did not get behind her until after it was safer, after she'd actually won her primary election. That's right. So I I, I try to be broad-minded about these things, but it's also important to remember who was there, who was there early. But it's important that we build the Broadcast Coalition, and the work that she's doing is so strategic and significant. And so the positive developments in 2019, many significant mainstream Democratic leaders, progressive institutions have stepped up big time and have actually supported Stacey's continued work on the national stage and in the state of Georgia to build upon what she did um, in 2018. So uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer chose Stacey to deliver the Democratic response to the State of the Union Address, the national, the single national Democratic voice in response to Trump's State of the Union. Then more recently, Pod Save America, the, you know, the national podcast of the Obama alumni folks, which is a very large risk, uh, listenership, they helped raise $2 million for Fair Fight, Stacey's voter protection organization. And then uh, just a couple weeks ago, Michael Bloomberg committed $5 million to Stacey's group, Fair Fight. So this collective embrace and putting real resource, putting people's money where their mouth is, is going to help the entire progressive movement 
in terms of fighting against the voter discrimination and voter suppression attacks that we're facing, but also in terms of the significance of Georgia. The states spent many years building an infrastructure, building capacity, mobilized all these different voters. That can be a real pivot point in 2020. Georgia is winnable in the presidential rec- uh, race in uh, uh, 2020. Stacey got more votes than Bill Clinton got in 92 when Bill Clinton won the state in 92. There are two Senate seats up in, in Georgia uh, in 2020. We need four to take back control of the Senate. Um, and there's two, there's a, con- there's a congressional pickup that we just came within 1,000 a, a votes of actually getting. We can also get that as well. So the strategic significance of sustaining what Stacey built is critical. And the fact that people are stepping up and putting real money behind it um, is why we have it at number nine. Great. I, I have to also say that for me in 2019, with all the hard news, every now and then I would just think of Stacy, and it would just lift me. And mm. I would think, okay, I am having a hard time listening to news, but I just heard something great that Stacy's doing, and that's going to keep me going. And yes, yeah, so there's Thanks to Stacey, there's a lot of exciting things happening in Georgia. And with so much attention focused on the Midwest states, it's easy for us, um, you know, those of us following the news and politics to lose sight of what's possible, what's very, very possible and happening in the South and Southwest. And speaking of Stacey, I want to both remind listeners, if you haven't already, check out our inaugural episode where Steve, you sat down with Stacey. It was a great episode, great um, interview with her. Uh, you know, I enjoyed being part of that talk too. And if you've listened to it before, listen to it again, because when I listen to her, it just gives me that lift and hope and inspiration that we are all craving for in these times. Okay, next, what do we have for number eight, Steve? So number eight is the Supreme Court decision saving the census from the Make America White Again's crew attempt to add a citizenship question to the census. And I was worried from the moment Trump won, I was worried they were going to try to mess with the censuses, how we literally count the composition of the people within the country, and that they were going to try to mess with that. And it took them a while to get to it, which is ultimately why they were unsuccessful around it. Um, But it's very significant that they tried. They were actually trying to both intimidate participation of people of color and also quite literally reduced the number of people of color that would be counted in the census. And there's this fascinating story of how a lot of this came to light and how the, this guy was a conservative mastermind behind all this. He died this year, and his daughter was estranged from him, I think for political and personal reasons, but when she was going through his, you know, his papers and his computer files, she found these memos that he had sent to the uh, Republicans around the significance of inserting this question um, asking for citizenship. And it says in this memo, the kind of things that don't usually come to light when they um, are being very disingenuous around their, their motivations. This memo says it would, quote, be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites to put a citizenship question on. So that's what they were trying to do. But fortunately, this administration is lazy, arrogant, and not terribly bright or disciplined. So they didn't properly cover their tracks. They ran out of time to be able to conduct this attack effectively. And that resulted in them getting blocked on procedural grounds by the Supreme Court in the decision that came out in uh, June. Truly, it truly is just unbelievable when just listening to you tell that story again, about that guy who is the mastermind behind it. It is just so heinous yep. and so blatantly racist that um, there 
are just so many layers to it that you think to yourself, this is what this man and, you know, the the system that he's part of was trying to do in 2019. Yeah. And this was real. And then they try to sort of excuse it all and cloak it with their rationale and rhetoric that unfortunately um, there are many people in this country who, you know, liked to hear and bought into it and found it to be very reasonable. But um, we do have a clip from the oral argument at the Supreme Court where superhero, one of my personal superheroes, Sonia Sotomayor, was, you just hear her, she was not having it. And I want to play this clip because this is very important to listen to, to get that ray of hope, that lift that we're all looking for. In March 2018, Secretary Ross reinstated the citizenship question that has been asked as part of the census in one form or another for nearly 200 years. The district court's invalidation of that decision was wrong. I'm sorry. It's not been a part of the survey, which is where he reinstated it, since 1950. And for Uh, 65 years, every secretary of the Department of Commerce, every uh, statistician, including this secretary statistician, recommended against adding the question. So it may be that 200 years of asking a citizenship question in other forms may be true, but not on the short survey. That's what's at issue. And what's interesting about that is that she cuts him off right away. This is the very beginning of the argument. He's trying to like say, oh, it's always been this way and try to be all very re- reasonable and whatnot. And she just cuts him off right away and puts him in his place. No, she's not playing. Yes, and she, she you know, if I've read her biography and know about her personal journey. I mean, she is just not here to play and she's not here for any yeah. of that messing. So, so, so glad that she's there and really glad to have that. A um, bit of a reminder of, you know, something that happened that was really positive. Okay, so Steve, that brings us to number seven. What's number seven? So number seven is the Democrats winning the gubernatorial election in Louisiana. So in one of our first podcast episodes, we talked with Tim Wise, an activist, anti-racist activist, who was involved in the campaigns in the early 90s against the avowed white supremacist who ran for governor, David Duke, former Grand Dragon of the KKK, ran in 91, won the majority of the white vote in that election. And so you have that in terms of showing how conservative that state is. Then uh, when I was researching um, Brown is the New White, I was actually surprised to see that the second lowest level of support of any state in the country for Obama from white voters was from uh, Louisiana, just 14%. So it's not any accident or that Trump won the state by 20 points in 2016. And then he went all out there to try to defeat the Democratic governor there, John Bell Edwards, including when he went down there saying, I need you to give me a big win. And went down there repeatedly, tried to you know use his platform, stir up his base to really go after it. And yet, despite all of that, They were able to beat that back, and the Democrat was able to prevail. So I think that that's significant um, just in and of itself, withstanding the attack. But there's also two very important lessons going forward about how do you win an election, right? So first is the centrality of black voters. All of the analysts and the assessment is that it was high black turnout, not just getting all the black vote, but getting lots of black voters to turn out that won the election for Edwards. And also linked to that is that there are enough whites. There are enough progressive whites to win an election. And that 
And although the number of whites who vote Democratic in uh, Louisiana is smaller, you need fewer because there's so many black people. And so that's something that you see in this country, that there's usually an inverse relationship between the size of the black population and the level of white support. Right. So Jesse Jackson won Vermont, the highest voting support in Vermont, which has the, like 1% black people. And then, but you have states with large black populations, you get fewer whites. But together, that formula can actually win. And that's what was proven again um, in this Louisiana election. So I think it's significant in and of itself, but also as a harbinger for what we can do in 2020. Such a great reminder and such a great win. Again, there was so much news happening. It was happening so fast, impeachment. And the thing is that I want to just repeat that. Um, it's so good to remember that the Democrats won the gubernatorial election in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that we just need to keep that in mind and what you just pointed out, how that win happened and that that can be repeated and that that is something that hopefully the Democratic Party and the ecosystem just holds on to and remembers for you know the upcoming elections. I also really enjoyed our talk with Tim Wise about the Louisiana dynamics, all that history that I didn't really know about and the lessons that we can learn for uh, the politics in our country today. And there, a lot of listeners did tell me that they very much did enjoy that episode. So if you haven't checked it out, please do check it out. Moving on to the next top story. We are at number six. Steve, what's number six? Number six is the Virginia election results. Virginia has really emerged as a national model for the country about how to methodically build power by organizing people of color and increasing the votes of communities of color. And so in this November's election, the Democrats flipped control of the state legislature in that state. And so now they have the called the trifecta, controlling both houses of the legislature and the governorship for the first time since 1993, and that it creates the potential to do very significant things from a public policy standpoint as well. Yeah, it's so exciting what's happening there. I think that if people who aren't already following what's happening in Virginia really tune in, it is such a thing to really get excited about and feel hopeful about. They're in Virginia, they have super sophisticated leadership, not the least of which uh, includes our friend, Democracy in Colors friend, Tram Nguyen. She's the co-director of New Virginia Majority. And Tram, she had an excellent article in the New York Times this year, um, just a few months ago, on how they won. And I'm going to read a little bit from that article that she wrote. Part of the failure of the Democratic Party and many mainstream political organizations in the past has come out of their belief that these communities weren't worth investing in. Engaging meaningfully with voters of color means talking to tens of thousands of voters to make sure they have the information they need to cast their ballots even after receiving racist Republican campaign communications. Yeah, so Tram's insights and lessons from that are so critical for Democratic politics going forward, period. There's such a default to television ads on the part of, you know, too many Democratic consultants and then now moving more towards digital ads, which, you know, somebody had described to me as um, television ads on smaller screens. Um, but there's this total obsession with that rather than with talking to people. And so building an operation where you hire lots of people, train lots of people, knock on lots of people's doors, have these conversations. And the fact that they won in Virginia really proves the effectiveness of that approach. 
And the the other part about exciting about them is that they actually are now are going to be able to move for move a progressive policy agenda, and they've already begun to do that in terms of induce, introducing bills in the legislature to expand voting rights and to in, increase gun control, among another um, among a number of other very um, promising progressive endeavors. So fantastic! And again, we're talking about the South. You know, we were talking about Georgia, then we talked about Louisiana and Virginia, and Virginia's win also factors into your um, choice for number five, which is on the list. So number five also connects with Virginia. Is that right? It does. And so number five is the potential ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is something that I actually did not know about was even early in the mix until after the Virginia election. But with Virginia taking control of the state legislature, they are now poised to become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment from when it was originally uh, proposed back in 1972. That's so great. So for many people who may not have been following this issue, and it's it's a new issue, like I like you had said, I'm just learning about it now too, but let's listen together to this clip from Carol Jenkins. She's the head of the ERA Coalition, and in this clip she describes where things stand right now. We've been working on this for about 100 years now, a century, uh, first proposed by Alice Paul, who gave us the women's vote and that we're all celebrating and so happy about in 2020. After she did that, she thought that there needed to be one more thing added, and that was to put this, uh, to insert this clause that says we cannot discriminate based on sex. And we've been working on that for 100 years. You know, we, uh, Congress passed it in 1972, quite a while ago. And uh, people have been working, and, you know, we needed to get 38 states. Uh, when uh, the time limit, so-called, uh, ex- expired, we only got to 35. But miraculously, in recent days, uh, in 2017, Nevada uh, ratified the ERA, and in 2018, Illinois ratified the ERA. And the ERA coalition, all of us sitting in the office, were like, wait, wait, what, what's going on? Does that really count? And we were told by our legal scholars that, indeed, it does count. And we had such an extraordinary week last week. The the election on Tuesday in Virginia, pro-ERA legislators were swept in so that we expect Virginia to become the 38th state in January, business taken up as soon as they're in session. Uh, And tomorrow we have a markup uh, in-house judiciary on removal of the time limit. So... A big week for the ERA after 100 years of working for it. So while there's still going to be some legal dispute about whether the time limit that was in the 1972 legislation applies, incredible scholars say that that limit doesn't apply since there's no limit in the Constitution. But if nothing else, this is significant because it's going to be a a big part now of the 2020 debate. So while we're running to oust an admitted sexual assaulter from the White House, the debate and the discussion in this country should be, should we in fact ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which outlaws discrimination based upon gender. So that will force people to take a stand and give progressives even more reason to come out and vote. Okay, so that was something that we've, as a nation, been working on for 100 years, and there's progress on that front, which is good to know. Next on our list, at number four, is something where, as a nation, we've been making progress on for 400 years. Is that right, Steve? 
Well, something we've been working on for 400 years. <laughs> oh. I don't know how much exact progress there has been. But yes, uh, number four is the, the New York Times 1619 Project. So this year marked the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first slaves in this country. And so in light of that benchmark, the New York Times, led by young African-American reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones, conducted one of the most impressive and audacious journalistic endeavors I've ever seen. So in short, they used the full power and prestige of the platform of the New York Times to highlight the centrality of the black experience to shaping all aspects of this country to the present day. And they're advocating a complete reconceptualization of U.S. history to mark 1619 and not 1776 as the real beginning of American history. This project really uh, is something that will stand out in my mind from 2019 as well. It is, like you said, just an incredible piece of work and not always the easiest read, but I feel like everybody in this country should read it. And everybody, if you can, try to get a copy of it. It's, again, 1619 from the New York Times. As a journalist, uh, as a mother, a woman of color and a mother of a girl of color, I felt personally deeply appreciative of the fact that the New York Times and its writers invested in putting this project together. And I was just blown away reading all the different parts of it and that they devoted um, so much to making it a reality. And there's a companion, I believe, website and you and also podcast. Yes, they have a podcast that has several episodes that elaborate on the content of the of the magazine. There's articles. so much history there and so much great analysis that I just encourage everybody to check it out. And for me, I think that I will be rereading and revisiting it because there's a lot to uh, unwrap and um, really ingest and, and take time to digest. So what I want to share today, what we want to share today is a little bit of a clip from the main writer, Nicole Hannah-Jones, as she describes how she came to conceptualize this amazing project. Probably last year, I started thinking a lot about the fact that this anniversary was approaching and that uh, most Americans still had never heard of the year 1619. And that, like almost everything else about the black experience, um, this anniversary, 400 years, was likely going to pass without most of us knowing anything about it. And there would be some tributes, but it wouldn't reach really the general population. And here I am at the New York Times, and I have a platform to do something about that. So I started thinking about what, what would that look like? Would I write an essay about it? Would I do a piece? Um, and then I think I might have gotten a Twitter argument, which rarely you know, happens, <laughs> but once in a while. Um, and someone said, you know, uh, the thing that every black person hears, slavery was a long time ago, why don't you get over it? Hmm. And I just was like, we're gonna, I'm going to pitch a project that is not a history, that actually looked at the modern legacy and uh, makes the argument that almost nothing across modern American life was left untouched by that decision in 1619. That mm -hmm. even things that we think have nothing to do with racism, that we think have nothing to do with slavery, uh, can actually be traced back to either the political, social, cultural, legal uh, norms that begun, begin to get established when we decide to uh, buy that first group of Angolans. Um, 
And so that's what I did. I, I, I didn't want it to just be about the past. I, I wanted to answer that question, which is, we can't get over slavery because America hasn't gotten over slavery. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to get over slavery more than black folks because we're the ones who suffer the legacy. No, that's true. But, but yet the legacy is all around us. Um, in a single article, I, don't, I just didn't think would do it justice that to really land into the world, it needed to be a survey across American life, and it means something when it's in the New York Times, the paper, a record, and that, that would bring, I knew that would bring a tremendous power to it. So, Again, really inspiring what she was able to accomplish with this Project 1619. Okay, so Steve, tell us what number three is. So number three is the simple but too frequently overlooked reality that the demographic revolution in this country continues apace. So we noted, in the version we wrote and pushed out, uh, Brown is the New White, that every single day in this country, 7,000 people of color are added to the country's population as compared to 1,000 whites. And so that's a combination of births, deaths, and immigration, the people with papers in terms of immigration. And so for all the you know, media and journalistic wailing and gnashing of teeth about Trump's perceived political strength, the 2020 electorate will be the most racially diverse voter population ever in this country. We lost the Electoral College by 70,000 votes in three states in uh, 2016. Looking at young people alone, since Trump was elected, 14 million young people will have turned 18 and become eligible to vote, half of them people of color. Wow, that is such a great reminder, and I do think that a lot of us who follow the news closely just tend to forget that, meanwhile, <laughs> the country is getting browner yep. um, by the second and that the reality is, is that our country is, is becoming more and more diverse every day and every year. And it is exciting to remind ourselves that 2020, we are going to be the most racially diverse electorate ever. And there is so much media coverage, like you said, doom and gloom, and that kind of uh, news does really draw us in, and it's it's really good to remind ourselves that um, there are you know these these points of light mm -hmm. <laughs> and facts out there that just don't get covered. There are fortunately a number of journalists in the media, including people that we are um, we follow and uh, you know we really appreciate their work who get it, who really get, you know, a lot of what you mentioned in your book, Brown is the New White. And one of those journalists is Ron Brownstein. And he is a journalist for both The Atlantic and CNN. And we just feel that he's one of the sharpest analysts out there. And he published a piece recently in The Atlantic, and it was from October. It's titled, Trump Has No Room for Error in 2020. I'm going to read a, a little section from that piece. Working-class whites are on track to continue declining as a share of eligible voters in 2020, according to a study released today by the liberal think tank Center for American Progress. In turn, two groups much more resistant to Trump will keep growing. Non-white voters will swell substantially, while college-educated white voters will modestly increase. Yeah, and that study that uh, Ron's referencing there um, by Center for American Progress, they do this deep dive into the demographic data, the census trends, et cetera, and they, and they do these projections looking at the 2020 election. And so there are two big conclusions that they have come uh, to that are not um, uh, appreciated in most of the media coverage that's out there. So one 
is that if the 2020 election is an exact do-over, if every racial group turns out in the same proportions that it turned out and votes with the exact same partisan preferences that they voted for in 2016, the Democrats would win this time simply because of the demographic changes, that the states are that much more diverse, even including the Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania three that people think that only only white voters live in. And then linked to that, this is the second point, is that if the black vote returned to the 2012 levels that we saw, that we would also win as well. So for those are critical things to both realize and there's looking at strategy for 2020, but also I think there are reasons, uh, there are cause for people to kind of step off the ledge that they might have stepped out onto if they read some of these articles predicting doom and gloom. That's right. And again, a great reminder why, and I'll probably be saying this a lot next year in our podcast episodes, but why it's so important for everybody in the new American majority to get out and vote and encourage one another to vote. Okay, so we've come to our top two what do we have, Steve, for number two? Number two is Nancy Pelosi reascending to the power of the speakership and the way she has wielded that, this power at this critical moment in history. Right. I mean, I really believe that if there were, if there were a political le- leader made for this specific moment, it's Pelosi in the era of Trump. Right? That's right. We have a president who's a misogynistic bully, contemptuous and dismissive of all the institutions, laws, and rules that govern our society. And he's completely met his match in Pelosi. She you know, called his bluff on the government shutdown back in um, January, uh, forced him to delay delivering this, the State of the Union speech. There's nothing more that he wants than national audience and attention. Um, she blocked his efforts to limit congressional funding um, for the wall and for other crazy things like that. And I think another thing people don't often appreciate, why I think they not really grapple her impact, they don't appreciate how progressive Pelosi actually is. So she is, on the one hand, trying to deal with a very ideologically diverse caucus of Democrats, many of whom are not nearly as progressive as she is. But it's the combination of her savvy and sophistication and how to bring that to bear, which makes a big impact. I mean, she has been lost to history. She was critically significant in passing the Affordable Care Act. There were multiple efforts where Obama's team of advisors wanted to give up, where people wanted to, like, make major concessions and not have broad-scale health care available. And she said in one of these meetings, very famously, we're not going to settle for kitty care. And so she held the line and fought for there to be um, widespread health care coverage. And so she's brought that tenacity and that coalition-building expertise to this effort. And so she was held the line against the desire, including for people like me around there, to move forward with impeachment because she's a very sophisticated coalition builder and she knows her members and her caucus. But she saw, she says that we were waiting for the moment when that would make most sense and we were ready. And she moved with lightning speed on this impeachment piece. And Trump has just been dumbfounded by it. He was like whining. You know, it's like, well, I thought we had won after the Mueller thing. And that she's just really running circles around them and has been moving with extraordinarily effective and impressive level of power up against what we're facing and doing something to finally bring about restoring the democratic institutions in this country. Yes, so true. Nancy has this year been tireless and fearless. I mean, more so than ever. I I feel like a lot of times she has been, but this year, just following her, watching her, it has been just incredible and really inspiring 
you know, that, that picture of Yes, her, I was just going to say that when, photo. Yeah, where she's the only woman in the room yes. pointing at Trump. It was just, it's iconic. It really it is. It speaks volumes. I just found it to be very inspiring. I saw a lot of people put it on their social media as banners in terms of what it represents, what she represented in that moment. Again, regardless of... Um, what you know, whether or not you agree with everything about her, and and but it is um, really important, I think, again, um, for a lot of young women, uh, as a mother of a young girl, to see a woman in politics stand her ground and hold that much power in a room full of men who are blatantly, you know, misogynistic. <laughs> right, and people forget that it was the moderate to conservative white male Democrats who tried to block her from becoming speaker. Yeah. And so just on all of those different levels, people, they have no experience, no expertise, as well as no spine and backbone. So we are truly um, blessed to have Pelosi as a speaker. Great. And that brings us to our moment of truth. Drum roll. What, Steve, is, in your opinion, the most important story at the top of our top 10 list, number one, for wins and stories that can make us feel hopeful heading into 2020. So I clearly feel that the number one story is the impeachment of the president of the United States, right? I mean, it's that I think we use this word fascism a lot, and I've actually been increasingly using it. And I, the other day I was on like pause. I was like, well, what does fascism actually mean, right? So I actually looked it up, right? So the, defi- the Webster's definition of fascism is a political movement or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition. And if this is not what's happening in this country, then nothing is. This is the direction that this president has been moving on in a very deliberate, unaccountable, unchecked, path and he's gotten increasingly bold and confident in that direction and feel and it's not any accident that we impeached for is this call he made the day after the Mueller report came out and feeling like oh I got away with that I can get away with anything that's right he felt like he made it through he exactly could keep going and so you have that and also it's also very affirming in terms of that you have this single whistleblower stepping forward and calling him out and then because we had taken back the house we were able to actually bring these institutions together but it's, we have been and are an inexorable march towards fascism. And I used to wonder, how is it possible to live in a country that you have something like the uh, Japanese internment, where the United States government goes around and rounds people up and puts them in camps? I don't wonder anymore. Same here. Having seen what's happened in this Same. country. Sadly. So, so to have the Congress stand up, hold him accountable, impose some consequences for his actions is extraordinarily important for our democracy, for the country, and frankly, for the world overall. Okay, so I have to ask a question, Steve, because it is often on my mind. Obviously, I've been excited to see the impeachment proceedings, but of course, it weighs on me. The question that a lot of people have in their mind is, say, for example, that he gets impeached, but not removed, then what? Yeah, so I think it's, and there's been a number of different articles that have talked about that. So, well, for, first of all, it's not a given. I mean, we'll see what happens. It's likely that he's not going to be uh, removed. But who knows what else is going to come out, right? And so there's so much that is there that if they, they've been able to keep the lid on these things, but who's to say that something else won't come out? So it's not a given, actually, that he won't be removed. 
And so that needs to be um, in this mix as well. So we need to impeach him so that we can see can he actually be be removed. But I think there are a few different, like, you know, strategic bigger picture pieces to it. So one, as I talked about, is it slows the march to, to fascism, is that he's, be, he's become increasingly bold because he's gotten away with more and more and more things. And so the Mueller report was threw him off his stride a little bit, but then getting away with it reinforced his boldness. And so being actually impeached, being the only the third person ever impeached in the history of this country, is an important check and a break on that march towards fascism. Second, in terms of looking at 2020, it educates the country about how dangerous he is. Right? If you look at the 2018 election, there was a meaningful uh, percentage of white voters and moderate Republicans, suburban Republicans, who defected to the Democrats because they wanted there to be a check on him. And so they clearly have had doubts. And so then to have the official formalized verdict of the House of Representatives that this man has violated his constitutional duties, engaged in bribery, engaged in all this, it lends legitimacy to those doubts. And so it keeps those people from drifting back towards him and can keep them in the coalition to actually vote him out come November of 2020. And third, I think it, it does show, particularly if we're able to get him out, I think it weakens him politically, that just maybe our democracy can withstand this kind of an assault. But it really, a lot hangs in the balance now. Like I'm saying, that this began with the people voting in Democrats into Congress in 2018. So then you had a receptive body with a, a small D Democratic to receive a whistleblower's complaint about wrongdoing to conduct a process that has then led to the impeachment of the President of the United States. And so all of that, particularly if it culminates in his removal um, through the election in 2020, really frankly, and I don't, you know, I don't sometimes talk about, people talk about, oh, the democracy, et cetera. And I mean, I've, knowing the history of this country, I'm you know, sanguine about all of that. But it will show that there is some resilience to this democracy in our institutions and, and that, it, that we actually have the kind of country that a number of us want to believe that we actually um, have come to create in terms of democracy, accountability, et cetera. All right. So there we have it. Our first annual top 10 stories that give us hope heading into the next year list. And again, listeners, uh, if you have any comments about that, if you didn't totally agree or if there's something that we left off that you would like for us to know that you would have put on your list, you can call our hotline 415-209-5103, 415-209-5103. And before we say goodbye until next year, we, each time we'd like to close uh, with a fun question, lighter question. And so today, Steve, I wanted to ask you, and I'll answer too. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Um, I've been so busy trying to get this year wrapped up. But looking forward to next year, I do think that, um, you know, tied into all of this in terms of how crazy things have been in the world that, you know, and so James Baldwin has, has this quote saying, um, to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a rage almost all the time. And so one of the things that my doctor has wanted me to pay attention to is my blood pressure. And so, um, so I've you know, been able to do different things in terms of like some diet and weight, I've had some success on that this year, but I still have to deal with the blood pressure piece. And so one of the things he wants to try to do is meditate more and be able to take, you know, that carve out that kind of time. 
So as a resolution, I think being able to have in a more regular base, like my wife meditates 30 minutes every single night, right? I am so far from that level of discipline, <laughs> but a resolution to be able to incorporate that more into my life to be able to have um, you know, more sustainability and a more even keel going forward. That's so great. I'm here for, I'm here to support you. I love to hear you, you know, taking more care of yourself and meditating and I'm picturing you and uh, maybe I'll get you a Tibetan bowl. <laughs> you can, you can chime. Uh, mine is, I don't know if there's a writer out there has written a quote, something about if you're an Asian working American working mom <laughs> in 2000, you know, at 2019, 2020, uh, you are probably also in some sort of constant state of, you know, feeling over, uh, kind of burnt out and overwhelmed and stretched thin. So I have said to myself for next year, uh, I would like to dance, you know, again, again, go mm. out and dance. When I was younger, growing up in New Jersey, I used to go out with my friends and we would go clubbing. Oh, wow. And yes, <laughs> and it was uh, so fun. And I haven't done that in a long time. And mm. I want to make a priority next year to get some friends together regularly and go out and dance. Wow. All right. All right. So that's our sh show for 2019. That's 2019. Uh, so thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Uh, we're having a great time doing this podcast. We hope you're enjoying listening to it too. Please help us get the word out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. As Charlie mentioned earlier, our hotline number is 415-209-5103. Feel free to call and leave us a message. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, until next year, until next decade, keep the faith.